was looking at who is the right person to call on, or what is the situation that creates the highest need for this product or service? You know, what is it that they're using? What are the issues and challenges that they sell against? And then what is the business case for making the change? And they kept saying, Jill, you're in sales, you should figure that out. And yes, I did. And pretty soon I was back training the entire corporate office about the business case because I would figure it out. And then I left and started my own consulting firm working with technology companies. I mean, if you ask me who was my prospect, I would say, I work with companies who love their technology too much. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jill Conrath. Now, usually at this point, I have a one sentence introduction to the guest, but I'm thinking, do I really need to do that with Jill? I mean, she's been one of the leading sales experts of the last 20 years. She's authored multiple best-selling books. She's a fabulous public speaker. And quite frankly, she was my role model as I got into this whole business of writing and speaking about sales. Now, when I asked Jill to come back on the show, I had to make her a promise, which was that we wouldn't talk about sales or sales advice, no how-to stuff. Instead, we're just going to talk about Jill and her career, her life, her successes, her work in helping and support and enable generations of women to pursue careers in sales. And as much as we can learn about sales from the how-to tips and techniques, I think we can equally learn from the examples of really successful people in our field, people who have taken chances to succeed on their own terms and who have inspired others to do similarly. So that's what we're going to learn from Jill on this show. But before we get to her, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jill Conrath, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy Paul. It's good to be here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. Thanks. So question for you is, what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? (laughs) That's a great question to start with. I've learned uh, I am extraordinarily impatient. And I when I something stymies me and getting in my way of moving forward, I spend time spinning in circles till I know what to do. It's driving me nuts. And you've noticed this more during lockdown. Well, it's, yes. Or exacerbated. Or, or, yes, because one of the things I was really planning to do was be connecting with people on some new initiatives that I was, you know, heading into, and suddenly the doors slammed shut. And, and it literally was like, ah, how can you stop this? I'm ready to go that way. <laughs> but I can't talk with people or meet with people like I want to. Yeah, yeah. And when will it end? Oh, I don't know. When will my spinning end or when will the situation in the country end? <laughs> well, I think, the, yeah, the, the two. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, I mean, the situation is unique that we're in right now. And I think it's affecting everybody around us. And I don't think any of us really know how to deal with it in a way that is totally um, like we'd like it to be. But I think we will slowly adjust. I know I'm starting to throw myself into learning some other things that I think are important as prerequisites for the directions that I want to be going in. So I'm, you know, taking some initiative now because I can't go forward in plan A. So I'm working on plan B, C, and D. Got it. All right. Well, we're not really going to talk about sales per se today. We're going to, we're going to talk about you and and your career journey because I, you are an inspiration for many in sales, not just women, but men as well. I mean, including me. 
I remember, I remember the first time we met, you probably don't remember, but um, gosh, I think I was more nervous to meet you than I, I had been to meet any other you know, sales icons, if you will. I mean, I just heard you speak in an event and, and my, my first impression was, wow, am I intimidated by this person? <laughs> and I'm so not intimidating. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not, but yeah. But I mean, you just, you, I mean, I was just getting into this you know, business of writing and putting myself out there as, you know, an expert or whatever. And, and you just, yeah, you, you had your shit together. Thank you. I worked hard to get the shit together. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. So, uh, and I've told you this before and other people that, you know, when I got into this business, because I talk about you being a role model is, is, um, yeah, you were on the models. I, I, <laughs> I think I just sort of slavishly copied what, what you did. So <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out nearly as well for me as it has for you. But, uh, so well, let's, so let's, let's start in sales, okay. your sales career at the beginning. You started your sales career with Xerox. I did. Back when they were a big deal, known as a great training ground. So, so coming out of university of Minnesota, why sales? Oh, I hated sales. Um, I didn't, I was a teacher at first. Um, but I, Hated teaching even more. What, now, what did you teach? Oh, we won't go into that. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, elementary school, middle no, school? high school. I taught at the high school level. High school, okay. Yes. And it was not a subject you'd see me teaching. But anyway, I really pretty much hated it. And I tried to get a job, and nobody wanted to hire me because I was a woman with a degree in education. And I didn't meet their criteria of a successful person. And so I finally, after a few years, decided that I would start my own company since nobody would hire me. I'd start it. And so I put together a business plan, roped together some friends, um, went to see the Service Corps of Retired Executives, a, a government agency from the SBA. Right. Gore. And the guy said, you know, he was a VP of marketing from, retired VP of marketing from General Mills. And he said, this is an excellent plan. Your timing is absolutely right. I look at the three of you and I know you can do this. And then he said, now, which one of you three is going to be in doing the sales? And, and I abhorred sales, and I think my friends did too. And they looked at me, and, and nope, they weren't looking at each other. They looked at me, and I turned and looked at the guy, and I leaned forward, and I pointed my finger at him, and I said, I thought you said this was a good idea. And he said, it is, Jill, but somebody has to sell it. So what was the idea? What was the, the well, company? Okay, I'm from Minneapolis, and Minneapolis at that point in time had the sixth largest corporate headquarters in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, what I had discovered in my research was that for the first time ever, companies were having a hard time getting executives to relocate because women were now in jobs and professions in the workplace, and they didn't want to leave. And so I came up with a relocation concept to help companies move and to help them uh, make the family transition easier for the, the female spouse who was typically the one who had to come along with right. them and how to make it really easy for the trailing spouse to integrate into the community, get a good job here and be off and running. Wow. Great so idea. It was a great idea. It was a yeah. great idea because it was a critical issue for businesses and we have so many corporate headquarters here. But anyway, the guy said I had to learn how to sell. So I said, okay, I'm going to Go into sales for one year. That's it. <laughs> one year. And I will go back to starting the company. But I got myself hired by Xerox. And I was so, 
at first, I mean, at first I was like the consummate student. I, I was there for one year, so I had to learn it all in one year. So that, I mean, that was a big deal. That affected me my whole life. So you went into it planning just one year. One year. And that, and that was a lifetime ago, obviously. Um, yeah, but I said one year. And at the end of the year, I thought, I'm having so much fun. This is, I'm so blown away by this that I'm not going to go back to my idea. So I told my friends goodbye. If they wanted to start the company themselves, they could. And, and so I stayed in sales. So what was it that was different than what your perception of previous, you know, prior perception of it was? was? I mean, what? Well, I mean, as everybody who hasn't been in, you know, professional sales before, I mean, they think slimy, manipulative, greedy, a scumbag, um, things like that. Yeah. And I discovered because I was at Xerox and they trained you on what worked and the skill that I discovered that Xerox promoted more than anything at that time was the ability to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. And, and I was always good at asking questions. And so it be, I became successful very fast and I didn't have to do any pushing. In fact, I hated closing so badly. It, it felt so unnatural to close that I would do everything I could to make somebody say, how soon can we get this gel? <laughs> or which model should we be getting, Jill? And so everything I did was to get them to say that. And, and, you know, where do I sign? That's all I wanted was to get them to say, where do they Where do I sign? I didn't have to sell at all. And I discovered it was fun and it was interesting. I was out with meeting all these people from all these different professions. It was expanding my world exponentially from, you know, the little world that I grew up in to boom, I was meeting all these different people, learning all these different jobs. It was like, the world opened to me. That's all I can say. The world opened to me, and I was extraordinarily successful very fast. But I have to say the reason I was successful was because I committed to learn it in a year. Mm-hmm. I didn't say I'm going to try and see if sales will be good, if I can do sales. I said I got one year to learn this. And when you say that, you throw yourself in with all your heart and soul. And, and when you do have failure, and, and things go bad, you can't let it get you down. Like probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me was, um, again, because I was on a crash course to learn, I had read a book on selling to executives over one weekend. And I went, oh, my God, oh, my God, that one account I cold, I cold called last week. The person I was dealing with was the executive assistant. I really screwed it up. I should be talking to her boss. So the next Monday... I called the boss and I said, I understand you're making a copier decision. I'd love to come and talk with you and share with you how Xerox can do it. He said, sure, come on in. So I went in and was waiting in the lobby to meet with the CEO of the company. And and down comes Tinsy with the secretary, administrative assistant. And she says, you remember her name? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure. These are names you never forget. But yeah. Tinsy. No. Yes. And Tinsy said, Jill, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here to meet with Mr. Big. I have no idea what his name was. Um, and she said, why is that? And I said, about your copier decision. And she looked at me and she got right in my face and she pointed her finger at my nose. And she said, I told you I was making the copier decision. You had no right to go around me. And, and she just laid into me and yelled at me worse than my mother ever had in front of a lobby of people. And I fainted dead away on the floor. Wait, wait, wait. You literally fainted? I fainted. I, I, I was, I mean, it, was like, it was such a shock to be treated yeah, like I'm that. sorry. I don't mean to laugh at you, but it is, it's an you interesting image. Though. You thought it was funny. Yeah. yeah I, did. I was humiliated, okay? Well, just, <laughs> then, yeah. 
And that was in the days when skirts were rather short, too, I might say. And, um, and, and so when I came to on the floor, I was not in a very graceful position. The first thing I did is I pulled my legs together so um, it would not be obvious to the rest of the world, you know. Uh, yeah. What, yeah. So, and then she said, are you, they, she, they helped me to a chair, put my head between my legs. And she said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm fine. And she looked at me one more time and she said, don't ever come back here. Huh. And I never did. When I finally got my strength together, I walked out of there and I walked into my car and I burst into tears and I was sure my career was over. And then I said to myself, Oh God, Joe, this is the most humiliating thing that has ever happened to you in your entire life. You faint. I've never fainted in my life before. Um, you fainted dead away. You're, you're with Xerox and what are you going to do? And, and, um, and, and literally because I had committed to a year in sales to figure it out, I literally said to myself, okay, Joe, you screwed up. What did you learn? What did you learn? Cause you can't do that one again. And it was real clear to me what I learned. You can't go around somebody, you know, to go mm-hmm. to their boss. I didn't know that. It didn't say that in the book I was reading. It said you should be selling <laughs> to executives. So I went there. Um, but that's, you know, that happened. But I literally had to pick myself up off the ground and brush myself off and say, you know, what did you learn? Because And I had to say, Jill, you didn't fail. You didn't fail. You just haven't learned that lesson yet. And so I was constantly for a whole year doing that kind of talk to myself about it's not failure. It's just a valuable learning experience. You haven't (laughs) figured it out yet. Well, uh, so a question about the interaction with Tinsley, because this is something that, that, um, you know, I find, I found myself when I was starting sales is, is this, this idea about being comfortable with people in positions of authority. Oh, I was terrified. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, had the same, same issue. Yeah, no, I would have much rather dealt with somebody, you know, didn't have a position of authority. I didn't have any confidence, you know? Right. Well, that's hard. So how do you think you develop that just through repetition or this determination or was there some moment where it sort of struck you as like, well, I'm just, I'm just talking to another person. Well, think, let me just say the thing started to work. If you constantly keep yourself in a learner mode and say, Ooh, that didn't work. What do I need to change? And so then I became an experimenter and I Mm -hmm. became somebody who was constantly um, talking to my colleagues and saying, how would you handle this? How would you handle that? Mm -hmm. Um, And and getting advice from everybody. And I remember at one point um, I was in another customer situation. It was a little bit dicey and I wasn't sure how to handle it. I don't remember the exact situation, but I remember at that point having been trained in by a guy named Jim Farrell. And, and I said to myself, as I'm, you know, dealing with this massively bad situation, I'm said to myself, what would Jim Farrell do? What would, and so I borrowed Jim Farrell's brain and I said, well, Jim Farrell would say this. So I said what he said and they calmed him down. <laughs> it was like, Oh my God, I borrowed Jim's brain. I wouldn't have known how to say that, but Jim, he knew how to handle these situations. So I did all sorts of things to keep my fear at bay, to deal with my failure. And let me just say that, those things that I learned doing that, I mean, they, they've been with me my entire career. Right. You know, right. I mean, every time I go into a new phase and things don't work out, I'm, I'm, you know, totally flexible saying I'm in a learning phase. You know, that's a valuable learning experience. I haven't figured it out yet. I know I will, but I just got to give myself time and I research and study and experiment. Well, I think that's such a valuable lesson because for anybody listening, especially people earlier in their career, is that, yeah, there's going to be failures. 
yeah, especially in sales, right? <laughs> More oh, often than not, God, oftentimes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, Andy, let me just say, then you know, even when things get good, you could be thrown, put into a new territory, you know, and have to start all over. And maybe you've been dealing with the, you know, the finance department. And now you're over in HR. It's like, oh, that's like a shock, mm-hmm. um, you know. Or, or we get COVID nineteen, or we get uh, a recessionary economy. Every one of those things is a new challenge that we have to figure out. It's not like we can keep going doing the same old th- things. We have to literally say. Ooh, that's not working and not just do more of what's not working, you know, because so much of sales is more, 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 but it's saying it's not working. What can I try? What can I tweak? Do I have to reverse the order? I mean, I remember um, when I, you know, I was doing my research on how to deal with crazy busy buyers, realizing that the whole presentation format, you know, PowerPoint presentation, client presentation format that we had been using forever was no longer effective because their attention span was so minuscule mm-hmm. that you had to literally jump to the key points at the end of your presentation right up front. And, you you know, you literally had to talk about, you know, we're here today to talk about how your company can increase, speed up, reduce this. Let me give you some examples of how we've helped other companies do this. And then we can get into the details. But if you did that, you caught their attention. They were willing to listen to anything you said. But if you went and tried to build the case, let me tell you about our technology. Let me tell you about our services and, you know, our methodology and all that bullshit. Um, you would lose them and then they wouldn't want to talk with you. They'd be gone. Or yeah. they'd throw up objections and say, no, nah, you know, we're really, yeah, we're fine here. We're not that interested. But you created the objections. So it's the the mindset of constant experimentation to try to, identify where you run into trouble and look at options for how you might have dealt with things differently and then be willing to do it and look stupid because, you know, you're going to fail when you try new things at first. And so one of the fears that I, along those lines, that I have about many of the sales organizations I interact with today and so on is that is they don't seem to be giving their younger sellers the freedom, the flexibility to experiment in the same way. I know. I want people to follow the script. Yeah. And it's how can you become the best version of yourself if you don't or aren't enabled in order to go out and experiment? I had a boss. I was fortunate to have bosses early in my career. Same thing. It's like, yeah, we had a process, but then we had a lot of freedom within that that process right. to produce. Right. And as I always like to say, they gave me enough rope to, <laughs> to hang myself. But, yeah, I, I had the freedom to go develop my own unique way of what I felt was unique to me, own way of selling. Mm -hmm. Well, I know like when I was at Xerox, I mean, and this is just going back to my very first years in sales. I mean, they had like a lot of people have now, they have, you know, uh, standards for how many demonstrations you need to Mm -hmm. give, how many calls you need to make, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I remember having um, real strong arguments with my boss about that because I was like one of the top few people in our regional office and I was significantly below my colleagues in the number of calls that I had or the number of demos that I gave. Me too. <laughs> Me too. You were, you, you did, you failed calls oh, too. I, I made them nervous because I had a thin pipeline. Yeah. And I did too. And, and, and they would say, but you I was need also to make president's more. club. Yeah. <laughs> Me year. too. Me too. And they say, you need to make more, you need to make more. And I said, why should I be making more? I think I should be making fewer. Because if I pick out who I'm going after and if I work with them and have a good meeting with them, I have a really high close rate and I have to, I have to work so hard. 
yeah. to get there. You know, I mean, it, it never made sense to me. That, well, it was always more and more and more. It's like they should have been looking at me and saying, what the heck is she doing? Why is she able to blow out the numbers here with fewer prospects, fewer, you know, demonstrations, fewer proposals, fewer everything? Why is she able to do that? That should have been the question. But instead, it was you need to make more calls. Yeah. Well, and you think about it in today's terms, this is, you know, it's not unusual, especially in SaaS companies, that AEs have this requirement to have uh, you know, their pipeline coverage ratio, you know, five times the number they need to hit for the month in their pipeline. Right. right. And I <laughs> rarely hit two on my pipeline coverage ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Because for me, if, if I, to your point, if I qualified a prospect, they were qualified to buy exactly what I was selling, not a product like mine. Right. And so I knew that if I got them qualified to my standards, they were going to buy. Right. And I always looked at, you know, my job was to create, and a lot of people are really against this today, but to, but it's how I've operated my entire career, to create opportunities out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and not wait till people are actually looking to change, but to get in and talk with people before they're actually thinking about a change so you can bring them some ideas on how you can help their business, you know, grow more profitably, profitably reduce their cost, you know, speed up whatever it is. But right. it was always me taking a look at who are the best people for this? You know, what are the characteristics of them? I think even today, you know, with everything that's on the Internet that you can find out. You know, you can learn so much about people and I would look for trigger events. Like what are the things that are happening to to my clients that that would cause them to, you know, not be happy with their status quo? And if you could track and follow the trigger events, you could really, you know, you could get in there early. You could establish the relationship as the professional who brought in the ideas. Maybe they would look at at other people, but maybe not because you were just easier to work with than they got that you got it. Yeah. Well, and that's that's such a critical point because people, you know, we look at the way we train sellers today. And this is this is actually true going back forever. The way yes. we historically train sellers is there's never education for how to make them smarter about business. No. To be able to have the Very acumen. That you talked about here, that you could have that conversation and stimulate thoughts on the part of the buyer about something that hadn't currently been or previously been contemplating. Right, and, and to me, that's where you have the strongest power. But let me just say this too: companies aren't teaching people this stuff, and and they should. But that does not preclude that any individual seller can exactly. take it upon him or herself yes. to become an expert in the field that they're in. Because then their life will be a whole lot easier if they can delve in, they can learn this kind of stuff, they can figure out, they can go back and look at their, and, and have interviews with their existing clients that they, especially the ones that they switched over from a competitor or from mm-hmm. an old way of doing something. If they interview ones that switched over in the last six months, they can get really good value propositions, they can get stories that they can tell people, they can practice their stories, they can figure out how to integrate them. You know, I mean, there's so much a person individually can do. It'd be great if companies did, but I would say that anybody who's listening, don't blame it on your company. You have the individual ability to become a a top performer. Well, and to have knowledge about business. And I I think I recommend yeah. to people just some, do simple things to start with. I mean, my dad, when I got out of college, first thing he said was, "You have to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal." And so, and yeah, you know, I not 
on the op-ed side, but on their business news. And for years, you know, every day I just scanned the Wall Street Journal and read, you know, some articles in depth, but I just, I picked up a ton of business knowledge, right? Um, you know, I, I had taken accounting in college, so I knew how to read financial statements and so on. But my first job selling accounting systems to, to small and mid-sized businesses, um, you know, I had to learn all the general ledger applications. And every one of my customers was a tutorial on how a business operates, how they make money. And yep. and this is knowledge that it's not just learning your your customers' specific marketplace. It's learning business. It's learning business, right. And I, and I, I came out of an environment where I had no background and nobody told me to read the Wall Street Journal. Um, but I did read the Minneapolis St. Paul business pages and subscribe to local business magazines because I worked out of a local, you know, mm-hmm. selling locally. And and you just start talking to people. And if you ask them why, and if you're not afraid to be stupid, if they say we need this to happen, to say, help me understand that. I mean, people are more than willing to share it. Absolutely. Most sellers are afraid to look dumb. I tell people one of the biggest influences on my career for learning how to sell were my customers. Yes. They taught me how to sell to them. And they tell, then they taught me, once they taught you how to sell to them, they taught you how to sell to a lot of people like them, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, mm-hmm. a question for you. In your early years of at Xerox, what was your quota? Um, three copy machines a month. Dollar-wise? Huh? What's no, that? we didn't count it that way. Oh, you, did, re- you did rentals, sorry? We had, we, well, we did a lot of rentals at that point. So it was, a, we, I mean, we were actually a SaaS business back in that time. Yeah. Sort of, you know? I, I mean, forgot about that, yeah. Programs, but... Um, you got points. Each machine had different points based on the value of the machine. So it wasn't a direct dollar correlation ever. Mm-hmm. And then we got extra points if we sold supplies with it, you know, and got them hooked <laughs> on Xerox supplies. Yes. You know, the razor blade. And you probably had a supplies quota. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And maintenance contracts. I mean, so we had to sell the whole shebang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you could make President's Club. No. Yeah, even even when I was selling computers, we had a forms division. And I had had a forms quota that I had to right. <laughs> hit uh, in order to hit President's Club. So well, yeah, I mean, to me, what I understood too, though, it wasn't just that the machines were not necessarily the big profit center of the company. You know, the the um, the toner and the maintenance contract mm-hmm. were the profit centers. And so when you understood that, it's kind of like, oh, I get it. You can't just sell something; you have to sell what goes with it because. It's part of the whole package. I mean, yeah. it's part of what makes a profitable company. The razor blades are more profitable than the razor. That's right. So you got promoted pretty quickly, though. Well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And so yeah. What, was, what, was, what was the hardest part of that transition for you? Um, I was warned about it from my sales manager before I took the position. He said, um, you will be surprised, Jill, when you move into sales, a sales leadership role that most people aren't working as hard as you are. <laughs> and I, I was so really surprised. <laughs> it's like I took what I was doing real seriously, you know? And were you the youngest person? I mean, oh. when I got from my first manager job, I think I was younger than all but one of the people I was managing. Oh. No, I was younger than some and older than others. Yeah. Because, I mean, Xerox at that point in time hired a lot of new college grads. And I had I'd been teaching for four years, but there were, I also had some outstate people who were who were um, older because outstate Minnesota there aren't a lot of really good jobs, and to be working for Xerox was a really good job. 
So outstate meaning outside the Twin Cities? Outside the Twin Cities and more the rural areas, the secondary tertiary cities. They covered yeah. a lot of territory geography wise. Yeah. You know, where in Minneapolis, you might have a zip code or not even a whole zip code if you were downtown. But you had half the state. You said you were working in Wisconsin some too, right? Well, no, my reps were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had, yeah my reps had half of Wisconsin. Well, I found it interesting then after Xerox, you went to work for and I hadn't hadn't heard it, hadn't <laughs> heard this name for a long time. You went to work for CPT. I and did. um it was a word standalone word processor. You make that sound odd, and it was, except we have standalone computers these days. Yeah, I know, but it's kind of more the same thing. But it, you know what, yeah. what let me just say that when I was in Xerox, I saw that computers and technology was where the world was tipping. Right. And I decided that when I when I left, I would jump into the technology sector and and learn technology. And it was a fascinating jump for me. And and what probably was even more fascinating for me at that point and for many, many years is I really hate technology, which most people don't know um, because I'm kind of out there from a technology standpoint. I sold technology. I qualified for President's Club selling technology, but um, I really don't like it. And and that is my strength. Interesting. And yes. Isn't it, though? So how, how so? Because... I mean, my regional office was right in the back. I mean, our corporate headquarters were right down the street. So whenever a comp- the company was launching new technology, they'd come to our regional office first, you know, because we were the, kind of the test test kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they'd introduce the product. And we sometimes had three days worth of training on these new technology things that hooked it all together, the lands and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah. I mean, it was a big networks, deal. Yes. overwhelming and I was selling Unix based operating systems and, and, and I don't understand technology. And so I was the one who at the sales meetings kept raising my hand and saying, okay, I can learn everything and what you're talking about, but what are people currently using now to do this work? How, what is the current situation? How are they, doing things in their office or in their factory or, you know, in their accounting department or in HR, how are they doing this? Without all this stuff you have. And they'd look at me and they'd say, Jill, that's your job. You're in sales. You go figure that out. And I'd say, but you guys, I'm talking to the tech people and the marketing people and they're saying, and I'm raising, I kept saying, but if you tell me what they're currently doing, what issues and challenges they're facing, what they can't achieve that they want to achieve, and I was looking for the business case. I was looking to, you know, who is the right person to call on? You know, what is the situation that creates the highest need for this product or service? You know, what is it that they're using? What are the issues and challenges mm-hmm. that they sell against? And then what is the business case for making the change? And and they kept saying, Jill, you're in sales. You should figure that out. And, you know, so, yes, I did. And pretty soon I was back training the entire corporate office about the business case (laughs) because I would figure it out. And then I left and started my own consulting firm working with technology companies. My, I mean, if you ask me who was my prospect, I would say I work with companies who love their technology too much. Yeah. Who were a a solution in search of a problem. Yes. That's the, and, and they'd say, what do you mean? I say, well, when they're launching new products, they literally blow their opportunities at the front side because they send their salespeople out. They're ready to talk all about the stuff. 
And that doesn't work. And what really works is to give them an understanding. Tell them about the product and say, okay, now let's put it in context. Here's the kind of company you're going to call on. Here's what they're currently using. Here's the problems and issues and challenges they're facing. And, and here's how you can help them. Here's the business case. And I work with companies then to help them understand that part. Well, and it was, this may be surprising to some people listening to this, but yeah, back in those days, I certainly experienced that myself is, is yeah, companies were really ready, fire, aim in releasing their tech products. Well, let me say, I still think many of them are. Um, and even if they're kind of aiming at the right market segment, they don't understand the business impact of their of what they're bringing to the table. When I see it, I can go onto a company's website quite often, and I can tell where they're where they're at. And like I remember a few years ago, I remember calling LinkedIn a few years ago and saying, "You guys are missing the boat here. <laughs> and? You're, you're selling the technology. You got to sell. You got to figure out. I say it may work in California where you got all these tech nerds, but I'm from Minnesota. I'm from the Midwest, and there's a lot of really good people here that don't get why your stuff is valuable. And so they had me come out and talk with them about what they were doing. Another one of my clients, again out in the Bay Area, where they love their technology too much. I mean, they came out with something where they were one of the first cloud-based products, and everything mm. that they did was. Yeah, we're cloud-based. We're cloud-based. And I kept saying, guys, I'm from Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, we don't know <laughs> what cloud-based is, but I, but I think it means something, you know? Like, what is it? What problems are they having if they're not cloud-based? And I kept, you know, I keep making companies go through that. But I literally can go to a website and see, are they talking about their stuff, their technology that they love too much? Or are they talking about the business issues and challenges that the customer is facing? So going through all this in, in the first few stages of your career, um, you know, you were there weren't many women in sales at that nope. time. Nope. And so, what were you encountering? Sort of both, you know, within the corporation, selling to customers that maybe, quite frankly, hasn't changed much in the those times. Oh, well, I, I, I tell you a couple things. I mean, I got um, I got guys trying to pick me up a lot. Um, Tell me about the problems that they had with their wife. Seriously. I mean, oh, I, yeah, no, I believe it. A lot of that. Um, I would, because I always loved training people and it was always like, give me somebody new to work with and show them how to do this. And I'd take out these young males that were being hired. And, I, and I'd, I'd be leaving the sales call. I, my job was to show them how to do this. And these guys kept, the, the, the buyers kept looking at the guy that I was with, you know, yeah. who's. I mean, right. I'm probably five, seven, ten years older than that young one, you know. And they're looking at the the kid, like he's he's the knowledgeable one, and I'm the I'm the you know the trainee. But so there was a lack of credibility that was in, just assumed. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have the credibility. I, I had a curiosity value, I think, but not the credibility. So again, like I said, I I wasn't somebody who liked to talk a lot about my product and service. I really liked the questions and getting people to want it. Um, so I just led with questions, but you know, for the most part, I was fortunate to be hired by a company who was forced by the government to hire minorities like women and African-Americans and Latinas. You know, we were, mm -hmm. was forced with federal contracts on the line. And within a few years of, of um, hiring, bringing in people, of color, bringing in people of different sexes and orientations, um, 
the business unit I was in, at least locally, 80% of the top sellers were female. Hmm. So we quickly proved ourselves given the chance, but Xerox did a really good job of working with us, you know, in terms of understanding. They had to learn how to do things because like in, in the interview process, they used to always ask, you know, like what motivates you and what they really wanted to hear was I'm really money motivated. I want to make it, you know, and a lot of ton of money and I want a big fancy car, blah, blah, blah. And like hardly any of the women answered that that way. And so they didn't think they were capable of selling because they weren't money motivated. And that part, uh, that perception seems like it still persists to a large degree. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, I, I felt like I was maybe my, you know, you and I were hired roughly around the same time into sales is, is for the first time is yeah. My entering cohort of people that are my peers, uh, large, it wasn't quite 50, 50, but a large fraction of it was, was women, the top performers. We all got promoted this group about the same time, pretty early. Yeah. My first full year as a sales manager. Yeah. In our region, at least 50, if not 60% of the top performers as sales yeah. managers were women. Right. But then things seem to sort of progress seems to have sort of stalled at oh, some yeah. point. Right. I agree. It has. I mean, there was a point in time and you're, you know, you want to talk about my career. I mean, there was a point in time I kept saying, um, especially when the internet came along and I could see who was out there and I was always fascinated by what I could learn on the internet and all they were featuring was male speakers. And I kept saying, where are the women? Where are the women? Why aren't there any women out there writing books? And why aren't there any women out there speaking? And I, I said it for a long time. And, and finally I realized that I seem to be the only one really upset that there weren't a lot of women out there. And I realized, okay, Jill, clearly nobody else is doing it. And it bothers you immensely. So you're the one who's going to have to step in and start filling the gap. And that's why I changed what I did at that point. So you changed the name of your company and you wrote your first book, Selling to Big Companies. Um, yes. I didn't change yeah. the name of my company. I kept my company name intact, but I wrote Selling to Big Companies. I, But by the time I wrote Selling to Big Companies, I already had a very active website. My corporate web website at that time was Leapfrog Strategies. And I had 10,000 subscribers to my newsletter, you know, by then. So I was out. I mean, I put out a newsletter starting in 2001. Um, and, and you know, I really studied hard. You know, I told you I'm a learner. So like, mm -hmm. if I'm going to write a newsletter, I'm going to figure out how to get subscribers. Because and so how did no you do that? That's, that's, a, that's a ton of subscribers, especially back then. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Um, but, I, but I studied it. I mean, I literally studied it because it was, if you're going to do something, you should do it well. And writing a newspaper, that newsletter that nobody reads is stupid. I mean, that's a waste of writing time. So right. I did research everything I could and started activating all sorts of different strategies than I'd ever done before because it was clear that, you know, I had to do things. I remember when I was first writing my first book, um, I, I started writing the book and then I stopped about three months into it, three chapters into it. And it's not a book that ever, I ever published, but um, I went, chill. If you're going to spend all this time and effort to write this book, then you want people to read it again. I'm going back to this. And that means people have to know who you are. So then I stopped and studied, how do you sell a book? How do you get a publisher? Cause I didn't want to self publish. I wanted a New York publisher, a big publisher to get it out there for me. And how do you get it 
sold. And it's uh, one of the things it said, I remember vividly, that if you want to have your books be successful, you have to be a speaker. And I went, oh, shit. I <laughs> hate to speak. I just hate to speak. And so then I learned how to become a speaker and threw myself into understanding that. So you see that when I get something on my brain that I want to do, that I'm in, it's like I'm in service to a concept, like, you know, that we needed women out there. Well, that meant I had to be visible. So I had to create a website and I mm-hmm. had to look, you know, like I was intelligent and have a well done website. And when I put up my first website, I studied over 200 websites. <laughs> and I noted what I liked and didn't like. And then my whole job was to create a sticky website that people would sticky. They'd stay there a long time and that they would sign up and give me their email, their, address. Um, email address. Right. You know, so I, I studied it. I don't know how to do these things, but I was in service to the fact that we needed a, a woman out there. And then with selling to big companies and writing a book and they said I had to speak. It was like, oh, God. Oh, God. I hate to speak. I mean, I can get in front of 30 people, but a crowd, you got to be kidding. I've only done it a few times in my life and my knees were shaking. But then I I did it. I yeah. started working at it and, and becoming that. So, you know, for me, it's been what I've been doing my whole career is in service to a, a message that I want to share. You know, it, even when, like you'll laugh when I say this, but when I wrote Selling to Big Companies, I had read a book called Your Higher Purpose. And it said, before you undertake any task in life stop to say what's my higher purpose in doing this and so I had read that book you know about a month before mm-hmm. I started writing and and so I said okay Jill what's your higher purpose and I immediately went oh I'm going to show people how to sell the big companies and my brain literally, it literally came back screaming at me and it said no and I went I mean my literally my whole mm-hmm. body inside of me said no and it was like a shock because I was so clear that my purpose was a how-to book but what came, I, I paused, and what came, an answer popped into my brain that I would have never thought of, but it literally said, no, your message is, your your higher purpose is to make people feel that it's possible. Hmm. That's a that. book, different that. book. The how-to book made me the hero. You know, I'm so smart. Here's how to follow me. The make right. people feel that it's possible meant that I had to share Stories like fainting or, you know, other stories where I had failed miserably or been embarrassed and what I learned. And that's how I learned this stuff. Because if I could show that I had all these warts and that I'd still succeeded, people could relate to it. And they go, oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. And literally selling to big companies starts out with my business failure. Right. On purpose. Because I knew once I understood my higher purpose, I understood that I had to... do my ultimate ultimate vulnerability at the front end. Well, I think it's such a valuable, valuable lesson because yeah, the world is is full, these you know, increasingly, given you know, LinkedIn and so on, full of of how to. Mm-hmm. Um but very little about why. And and I think that this is to me that ties to your sort of, you know, what is possible. You know, we're we're hooked on this idea of transformation as opposed to um, getting incrementally better to achieve something. And it I seems guess. like you've, you've dedicated yourself to a very deliberate process of trying to become the best version of yourself. And not necessarily as a transformation, but as a, 
hey, I'm going to get involved in the subject and educate myself and see where that leads. Yes. But, you know, people need to know that, you know, every one of these things has been a huge gulp moment. You know, it's like, <gasps> yeah. oh, my God, I have to speak. <gasps> oh, my God, you know, gulp. And then because I feel strongly that what I'm doing is important, I will take those steps and go through the the painful learning process you know, or the highly educatable, highly valuable learning experience of becoming good at something I uh, don't know about or an understand yet or or um, just feel needs to be shared. Well, I think it's a process of reinvention. Yes. And yeah, if that's, I look at my career. I've had like nine, nine points of reinvention. But part of it is really driven by or most of us say it was really driven by this this desire as to what can I learn next that's really interesting that will keep me interested mm-hmm. yeah. as I go through life. Um, yeah, mine has been driven partially by boredom. I have yes. what I would call a very low boredom threshold. And as soon as I learn something and have mastered something, I'm no longer that interested in it. And I feel a need, like you're kind of saying, to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like all my books are driven. They're not just me writing. They're driven by problems that I've had to solve. You know, it's like every book is a personal problem for me, you know. And it's like, oh, God, nobody's answering the phone. All calls are rolling to voicemail. Nobody's getting back to me. Ah, you know. And then. Then finally stepping back and going, it's not just me. It's happening around me. Now what do I need to learn? How can I figure this out? Yeah, I remember when you were immersing yourself in, in research for um, more sales, less time. Yes. Very right. similar. Which is, all, which is all about you know helping crazy busy salespeople get more done working less. And I became, I mean, I read everything I could, not just on time management, but just in a whole variety of areas that impacted what was sapping my time or how to work better. I mean, I just became a constant learner. And then I started experimenting. I actually spent the full year experimenting with myself because I had a personal goal because I was, I was so tired of being online all the time. And I mean, I just didn't feel like I had any fun anymore. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was a puzzle that needed solving. Well, just as we last few minutes we have here is, is, yeah, one of the concerns is is that with, there are not enough young voices um, writing books about sales these days, and sort of leading the charge from a thought leader perspective for the next generation. So, what advice would you give to people who, you know, maybe have you know the same idea? There's something they think that problem that needs to be solved that they can make a contribution to, but what are the first steps they should be taking to make that happen? Wow. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to throw yourself into a subject and then either start writing and speaking about it. If you want to make a difference for other people, you can't let the what you've learned and the journey of learning, you can't let that go to waste. You know, to me, it's it's really important that you share what you learn. And, and there's so many vehicles for sharing these days. Let, let me just say for me, like, one of the mm-hmm. first things I did, and you're talking young people, but I remember when I first started selling in my first two jobs, you know, whether it was Xerox and selling technology, um, you know, the first time I ran into a new competitor, for example, I would usually lose to that competitor. Yeah, right. Um, they, 
I just didn't know how to sell against them. But after coming up against them more times, I finally saw what they were doing, what strategies they were using, what lies they were telling, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I saw that kind of stuff. And then I figured out a way to, you know, put them at a disadvantage and to, you know, uh, get them more interested in what I was selling. Right. Make them worry about you. I suppose. Right. And then, you know what I did when, as soon as I figured it out, it was like, okay, now I've got a repeatable pattern here. I called together my college and say, you guys, I figured out how to beat this competitor. Let's do a workshop on it. And I'll tell you what I've learned. I mean, I literally was doing that. Nobody asked me to, it wasn't Mm -hmm. on the schedule, but I would put together a workshop on how to do that. And then get other people to talk about it and we'd focus on it. And then, you know, again, it would happen, you know, a little bit later, something would happen or, or we were selling a new product and we needed more ideas on how to sell it. And it wasn't working real well. It was like, I throw myself in, learn it, learn it. And if somebody's, you know, doing that and wants to share their ideas, I mean, there's no reason that you can't do ad hoc sharing on your own to help other people do it. Now that positions you as a thought leader in your own organization. Exactly. Um, and it also gives you more confidence in your own ability, and and, and in your knowledge, your ability, you're you're gonna be less fearful to share that. Yes, and then you you know then to share it online, and it's really hard to share some stuff online at first. It's very threatening if you haven't done it before, especially mm-hmm. when somebody says that is the most stupid ass idea I've ever seen. <laughs> Invariably, somebody will say that too. Yes, they will, and and you know if you haven't done that kind of stuff before, where you put yourself out there. It's like, God, you just want to crawl in a hole. Um, but it, you have to kind of tiptoe in. But I, to me, it was easier starting with my, my own colleagues about how to do something or what I just learned. And you can do it just by, you know, having running experiments in your own company and talking about the different experiments that you're doing. You know, hey, you guys, anybody want to work with me tackling how to do this? Because we're all having trouble here and getting people together. I mean, that kind of stuff is really good from an overall development standpoint. You get stronger in your own capabilities. You position yourself more for a sales leadership role, if that's where your direction you want to take. I mean, there's so many good things that come out of sharing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, A, as you share, as, as you know, it's been written about before, but, you know, you've talked about this as, you know, you, you learn through, through teaching others what you really believe. That's right. And I think that's really important is – you talked earlier about you know someone's successes of your book is, is showing what's possible is because you're sharing your own stories, your own journey, which yeah. is you know with LinkedIn as a, a primary business platform, mm-hmm. it has evolved very rapidly over the last several years to being one of these platforms where increasingly the content is around people sharing yes. their journeys, and that's a great place to start. It is right. Is document what you're doing, yeah. um, and then. I still think there's tremendous value as you've done multiple times is long form content. You know, a, a book forces you to lay something out Ooh, uh, yes. more completely. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I also think it has outsized value compared to, you know, listening to a podcast or reading a blog post or so on. Yes. Um, so as an investment, a learning investment, books are still important. And I said, we need, in sales, we'll need people under the age of 40 writing sales books. Yes. But, you know, I don't know if we've ever had a lot of people under the age of 40 writing sales books. It seems that somehow in your late 30s, um, 
people are really developing a sense of, I really get it. You know, I'm confident in my own knowledge that I could write a book. And it, yeah. when, I mean, there, there's a, a personal learning curve of confidence in what you're doing, that it's, you know, you can do it. You've been in different jobs. You've repeated it several times. You know, you've got the track record, you know, it's not, you're not a one job wonder. Yeah. I mean, and, I, and I've seen people, I mean, I, I think, you know, moving into that kind of role in your late thirties is really where people are most comfortable finally are finally comfortable with what they know and their willingness to share it with other people. Right. Well, still under 40, late thirties. Yes. <laughs> the general idea being is just, mm-hmm. we need more voices, more new voices. And I agree. yeah, just don't rely on, on the short form stuff you can do online, but yeah. What's the story you're going to tell in the book? So, yeah. all right. Well, Jill, we've run out of time, but it's been fantastic to talk with you. Do you want to, Provide any clues about what's next for you? Oh, I'm like I said at the beginning, I'm still spinning, but I feel a real need to um, take what I've learned in this lifetime of um, business and sales and move it more into what we can do in this country to pull people together and become the country we're supposed to be. Love it. Excellent. I have no idea what that means, though, but that's what I'm working on, how to create a different future, a better future. Love it. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to learn more about that. So um, maybe next time <laughs> when you're ready. <laughs> okay. We'll have you on and talk about it. Okay. All right, Jill, a pleasure as always. My pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my good friend, Jill Conrath for sharing her story with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. Do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.